Good morning, Bethel, and a very special good morning and happy Mother's Day to all of the moms that are here with us today. We uh, love you so much. I want to say uh, a special shout out, um, expression of my love to my mom and uh, to my precious wife, who is an amazing mother as well. And uh, we're just thrilled with this chance we have to get to be in a family together um, and uh, to just honor you today on this day, mothers. And so we're coming to God's word. Let us pray together here and we'll dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for uh, the gift that we each have of uh, mothers. And we just ask that on this day that you would um, be near, encourage, strengthen, and lift up uh, each of the women of our church, those that are um, biological mothers, those that are foster mothers and adoptive mothers, uh, those that are spiritual moms, those that um, hearts celebrate today, and those whose hearts ache on a day like today, missing and longing for their mother um, or longing for that desire to be a mom. And, uh, and it brings up great sorrow and loss. We ask that you would comfort, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen. As we come to your word, we ask that you would speak. We are your servants. We desire to hear from you. We desire to listen. We desire to meet with you. And so God, through your word, show us Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, apply the truth to our lives that we're going to hear. Change us that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I want you to imagine with me, you get one of these beautiful spring days that we're getting every now and then, right? And, uh, and you decide to go for a drive, okay? So you kind of head out of town, and uh, as you're heading out of Strathroy here, you stop into the Tim's to pick up an ice cap. And you're driving your way, uh, heading up towards uh, Poplar Hill. You, you go through a number of those small villages and end your way up at Grand Bend. You get out and you watch some of the waves along the shore there. And then after that, you get back in your car and decide to drive kind of along the coast. You, you go through the pinery, you, you, you pass along uh, and see Ipperwash there. You go all the way down along uh, the water to Sarnia, get back onto the highway, and then come along the 402 all the way until you get to exit 65. Get off on exit 65, head back down into town, and then you, uh, you pull off. Um, and just around the corner from McDonald's is my house, and you come home to to uh, have a nice rest after that little outing. Now, if I were able to see you and do a little show of hands, I, I'm curious how many would be able to know and follow exactly what I just said. As you, as you heard me express that, it made total sense to you. You're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Alan. I, I can visualize those roads. I can imagine those towns. I can picture those things that you're talking about. It makes perfect sense. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you are from this area. But imagine I went through and said that exact same spiel to, to a good friend of mine, pastor, colleague, who we uh, partner with as a church, Bimlal, who is a church planter and pastor in Nepal. Imagine I went and said all of those things that I just said that made perfect sense to you, to Bimlal. And do you know what he would say? <laughs> right? Because he would have no idea what... Tim's and an ice cap and, you know, you go from Poplar Hill to Grand Bend and along the, the coast past Ipperwash and it would all just be like blah, 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 blah. It would make absolutely no sense, right? To a guy who has never been to Canada, let alone in southwestern Ontario or Strathroy 
and has no concept of the, the culture, the towns, the places that we're talking about here. It would sound just about the same to Bimlal, that story, as what we find ourselves coming to today in the book of Joshua. As we come to this study in the book of Joshua and we hear the words that are going to be told to us from Joshua, it probably sounds a lot initially to our ears like that would sound to my brother and friend Bimlaw. The book of Joshua is this amazing book that we've been journeying through, working towards um, learning about and seeing how God brought his people into the long-awaited promised land. And they have been on this epic journey, this journey that has lasted decades, centuries, generation upon generation. And, and last week, we finally saw this moment. Do you remember this? you remember this? At the end of Joshua chapter 11, so Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. God did it. God did it. God brought them finally. This is the generation. This is the leader. This is the people. They are brought into the promised land. God gave them victory. And now they begin to receive the promised land. Now, there's a little nuance to that, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But basically, that's the bottom line. End of chapter 11, God gives his people victory. And now, what we see from chapter 12 on forward for the next few chapters is, is God leading the meticulous distribution of the land to the people. He, he goes through this whole group of people, and remember, over a million people, men, women, and children here, and, and he goes through by the 12 tribes of Israel, going back to the 12 children, and, and he divides it up and says to each one of them, okay, now you are going to get your land, and now here's where your land is going to be, now here's where your land is going to be. And since we are here, and we're reading it in Strathroy, Ontario, Canada, in 2022, and Joshua is giving these directions to Israelites in ancient Israel, 3,000 plus years ago, this is going to sound a little bit like blah, 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 like my trip to my friend Bimlal. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by this, okay? Joshua chapter 12. Let me read you a few verses from chapter 12. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered. On the west side of the Jordan, from Baal-Gad to the valley of Lebanon, to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai near Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, and the king of Lashish won. Now, can you picture with your mind's eye exactly what just happened there? Do you have a, a vision in your eye and you know the villages and the places and the people and the names and all of that sort of stuff? Do you know it? Well, no, it it doesn't have immediate resonance to us, I'm guessing. And so some might think and say and suggest, well, that means that what you really need to do to really understand the nuance of what's going on here is you need to get a PhD in ancient Israeli archaeology and, and learn all about the different places and towns and, and locations so that you can really immerse yourself into the text and understand it. And as much as that would be 
amazing. As, as much as that really would bring so many new things to life to the text to be able to really internalize and understand. Anybody at home wanting to sign up for the next five years doing your PhD in ancient Israeli archaeology? Uh, I'm guessing probably not too many of us. So what does that mean then? What do we do with texts that we come to like what we're finding here? The other extreme, other response might be, if you say on the one hand, well, to figure this out, what you really need is an ancient archaeological PhD. The other extreme might be to say, well, you know what? That's why this really doesn't even matter to us too much right now. That's why when I'm reading this section of scripture in my quiet times, I just kind of skip a few chapters and just jump ahead. And I don't know if you've ever been guilty of that because this just doesn't make any sense. And is that, is that what we're supposed to do? Is, is that the response that we are supposed to have to this? No, that's not the response either. That, that's not the, the response that either that we are supposed to have to God's word be, because we don't just skip over it. This is all God's holy word. This is all inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 is true even for these parts of the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture including that list right there, including those genealogies that such and such begets, such and such begets, such and such begets, such and such. All of this is God's holy word. So what do we do when we come to sections like Joshua chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 even? What do we do when we are reading through these passages and it feels like it's a foreign language and we have very little to kind of grab onto or, and, and find our bearings with? Well, what I want to suggest today here is that over this session and next week as we dive into God's word in their next section, we are going to, we're going to step out of the, the journey we've been walking through the forest, on our feet, walking through the forest, taking note of every little kind of branch and stick and, and bug and leaf. And what we're going to do right now is we're actually going to get into a, a bush plane and we're going to fly just over the canopy of the forest. Not, we're not jumping in a 747 where we're at, you know, 30,000 feet and you can't see a thing. And it's all just a blur. We're going to get in a bush plane, but, but this is going to allow us to see the forest at a higher level, but not a crazy high level, still be able to see what's going on, but to get, you know, a little bit more of a high level summary here. And, and today I want to help us see two key lessons from the vantage point of the bush plane, going over these six chapters here that God has for us to learn. Two key lessons, okay? Here's the first lesson. Here's the first call for us from these chapters. Dig into God's book because his word is real. The first encouragement, spurring on takeaway for you, for me, here today in these six chapters in the middle of Joshua is this. Dig into God's book because his word is real. I read for you. Let me read a portion of it again from that little section in Joshua chapter 12. It said there, these are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan. The king of Jericho, 
won. The king of Ai, which is near Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lashish won. And it goes on and on and on there for um, quite a number of verses, 15 verses actually, 15 uh, until verse 24, 15 additional names of kings of, of particular cities that are going on there. And then it ends in chapter 12, verse 24. The king of Tirzah won 31 kings in all, okay? 31 total kings that God helped Joshua and the Israelites to defeat on their way into taking the promised land. 31 specific kings of 31 specific places with the names given here. Now, I know that for you and for me, these names don't make a whole lot of like, oh yeah, I know who that is, right? It's not like for us, you know, when we hear Justin Trudeau or when we hear Doug Ford or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or on down the list, we immediately know who we're talking about. We immediately have a frame of reference because we're familiar with them, right? We don't know who these kings are. We don't have an immediate picture in your mind. But, but notice, friends, this text here in front of us in Joshua 12, verses 7 to 24, goes to great efforts to list every single one of these particular people, men, kings, who led these particular places, cities, at this particular time, right? It goes to great length to try and detail this because although we are somewhat removed from the place and time and we may not be able to immediately think of who these are, what we're seeing here is that they are very real people in very real places at a very real particular time. Here, God's word is taking great pains to point us to see the flesh and bones of the men that God has led to their defeat under Joshua. Chapter 13, for example, we, we see this again. Verse 8 of chapter 13. The other half of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites, that's, that's three of the 12 tribes of Israel, Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, had received the inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned to them, and extended from Aor on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the middle of the gorge, and included the whole plateau of Medba, and as far as Dibon. Or we read a little further into chapter 13. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Gad, clan by clan, the territory of Jazer, all the towns of Gilead, the half uh, of the Amorite country as far as Aor and Rabbah and, Hesh- and from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpah. And you skip ahead and you skim Joshua chapter 15, the allotment of the tribe of Judah, clan by clan. It extended down to the territory of Edom and the desert of Zin and to the, in the extreme south. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Salt Sea, and it crossed south of Scorpion Pass and continued on to Zin and went over to south of Kadesh Berna, Bernea. And between chapters 13 and 19, we find Joshua going through, in this pattern, each of the 12 tribes of Israel and giving them specific directions on the land that they are to have. And to us, it's like, 
what is he talking about? But for them, it's the equivalent of like, if right now I said, okay, I'm going to give you a plot of land. I want you to draw a line from Strathroy to Mount Bridges, everything north all the way up to Poplar Hill and Kamoka, you get that. Everything south of, of that line from Mount Bridges to Strathroy all the way down to, um, to Melbourne, you get that. And, and we know exactly what that means, right? Because we have the frame of reference. We might not know Edom and the Desert of Zin and the Scorpion Pass and Kadesh of Barnea. We may not immediately have a reference for that, but don't miss this. These are very real places. These, these are literal, physical, actual places that Joshua is pointing out. What Joshua is saying here is that he had a very specific, clear, direct, physical, real happening. What we are reading here, brothers and sisters, is real. It's real. And over the years, many, many, many people have tried to write off this book, have tried to discount this book, and have come with skepticism and all kinds of uh, vitriol to try and attack this book. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous is a French philosopher called named Voltaire. He lived from 1694 to 1778. Two years before his death, in 1776, Voltaire is said to have declared this. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Voltaire spent his career vehemently criticizing, ridiculing, mocking Christians and throwing out the Bible, and he was absolutely against it. He was a massive opponent and a harsh critic. As I said, he died in 1778. A hundred years from now, there won't even be a Bible in existence, he said. Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't you know? Only 16 years after Voltaire's death, the French town that Voltaire spent his last two decades in, do you know what started to happen? People started coming to this town and telling the people about Jesus. And people started coming to know Jesus more and more and more, to the point that just 16 years after Voltaire's death, the very printing press that Voltaire used to publish all of these pamphlets and books decrying Christianity and, and saying the Bible is ridiculous and should be forgotten began being used to print Bibles to distribute to the world. On, on top of that, if you go to the town where, where Voltaire was before he moved to France in Geneva in Switzerland, it was not even 60 years later, it was 58 years later, that, that the most beautiful of ironies happened. The very home that Voltaire lived in, he sold to a friend before he moved to France. A family friend who the next generation, well, guess what? One of their kids came to Christ and, and took the home and grew up in that home and then, and then took it from his parents and grew up in, in following Jesus, became so passionate about Jesus that he actually became the, descend, the descendant of Voltaire's friend living in Voltaire's house, became the president of the Geneva Evangelical Society 
And he actually was so passionate about helping people learn about Jesus and get the Bibles that he actually started filling rooms of his house with Bibles and Christian pamphlets and tracts to distribute so that people all over there could come to know Jesus. The very house of the guy and the printing press of the guy within 60 years was being used to spread the good news of the gospel. 100 years from my day, there will not even be a Bible on earth, Voltaire said. Ha! The Bible is a book unlike any other. It is not a book of fairy tales and myths, and it is not going away ever. It is a book that is real, friends. It is a book that is trustworthy. It is a book that, yes, has faced many critics, including the likes of Voltaire. And yet, look at what still stands today. The Word of God still stands. And when we read through these sections of Scripture, of names and places here in Joshua, that at first might sound like foreign blah, blah, blah to us, do not miss the point. Our first reaction may be to skip over it. Why is it even here? It is here because God moved in real places at real times amongst real people. He moved at real places in real times at, with real people. It is here, these sections, like chapters 12 to 19, to help us see this book has confidence. This book is about real people in real places where Almighty God moved. We see these details because the heart of the original author, led by the Spirit of God, is like, come, come, see. Come test this. Come look and see that you can trust this book. It's obviously a very different time, but we see the same thing if you skip ahead a couple hundred years into the book of 1 Corinthians, talking about when Jesus was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. I received what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then to 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now you might ask, well, why does the Apostle Paul mention Peter and the 12 and 500? And why does he go on and say most of these are still alive? They're not dead when he's speaking about Jesus rising from the dead. Why does he do all this? He does all this because what he's saying there is, if you don't believe me, look, I'll give you the names. Go knock on their doors. Go chat with them. Go hear them tell you the story too. This is not just some like made up story in a land far, far away at a time way gone in the past. No, this is, this is actual historical events with literal people in physical places at real times. Can I just tell you, friends, here, this book that is held in our hands that we get to open every single week. This is a trustworthy book. Yes, critics come and critics go. Voltaire's come and Voltaire's go. 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the very unique word of God. It is true in all that it says. God has guarded it and protected its truth. And so friends, I want to urge you. We are called here. Dig into God's book because his word is real. This is what jumps out at us as we read through, as we get in the bush plane and fly over at a high level, these chapters here in 12 to 19, we see God's word is real. So, are you digging into God's word? On a very personal level, like when was the last time you personally sat down and came to the book that God wrote? Are you questioning or wondering or wrestling? Can I really trust this book? I hear all these people at school. I hear all these people at work. I hear all these rumors online that seem to just throw this out and discredit it and call it an old antiquated book for curiosity seekers. No, it is trustworthy. It is reliable. Real people, real places, real time by a real God moving in history. Are you, are you in a small group? If God's word is so real and so true like this, are you taking the time to really dig into it and have others help you understand it? Are you committing to come to church and to dig into God's word each week and hear it proclaimed so that we can live by the truth of God's word? Dig into God's book because it's real. That's our first lesson that we see coming as we survey the land of these six chapters. Dig into God's book because it is real. As we continue in this bush plane, here, let me give you one other example of a lesson we learn as we survey this part of Scripture. It's this, savor God's care, Bethel, because his work is personal. Friend, at your home right now, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, I want you to know that you can savor the care of God because his work is personal. Not only is his word real, so you can trust it, his work is personal, so you can savor it. Here in these chapters, the personal, individual care of Almighty God is nothing short of astounding. It's astounding. The whole scene, first of all, is happening because... God took personal interest in one person and his family 450 years earlier, right? The whole reason this whole thing is happening in Joshua is because back in Genesis chapter 15, about 450 years earlier, God took note of this man called Abram who became known as Abraham. We read in Genesis 15, 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram didn't make God come to him. It says here that the Lord came to Abram. God took the personal initiative to begin a covenant relationship with Abram. God kept taking the personal initiative in relationship with his people throughout the 450 years that led to this point that we've seen over and over and over again. And then in chapters 13 to 19 here in Joshua, God takes the most intimate of personal care by going 
tribe by tribe by tribe through the people and saying, here's your new home. Here's where your land is going to be. Here's where your family is going to set up. And he goes through tribe by tribe by one by one. It says in chapter 13, it speaks of the land for Manasseh and Reuben and Gad. Chapter 15, it speaks of the land for Judah. Chapter 16, for Joseph's tribe. For Benjamin in chapter 18. For chapter 19, it talks about Simeon's and Zebulon's and Isaacar's and Ashter's and Nephtali and Dan. Family by family by family. God says to each one of them, I remember you. I love you. I take notice of you. I have my eyes and I never forgot you. Here is your home. That's what's happening here in these tribes, in these chapters. These chapters are so detailed because God is so personal. Let me say that again. We cannot miss this. These chapters are so precise because God is taking note of every person. That's why it's this place to place to place, person to person to person, and it feels like this long list, but it's showing us he cares about every single person. And then even within this like overarching picture of the amazing personal care of God, we see these little moments, and there's a bunch of them throughout these chapters. But let me give you like, I think the quintessential beautiful picture of God's care in this. It's in chapter 17. There's this little kind of like parenthesis story in the middle of chapter seven or at the start of chapter 17. It says in chapter 17, verse three, now Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. There's this guy, his name is Zelophehad. He's the the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Manasseh, which is one of the tribes of Israel, right? And and this guy, Zelophehad, has five daughters and no sons. He didn't have any sons, which at the point this is happening is a problem for them because all the land is given out. The, The deeds are written in the names of the sons. The, the land, the houses are allotted to the, to the names of the sons. And, and so in the midst of this, and you got to picture this, right? There's a million people before Joshua that he is dealing with to give out to the different parts of the land. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, there is this one family, which is this like tiny little subset of the tribe of Manasseh, this one guy who has five daughters and who is like, what's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my descendants? Because I don't have any sons. And, and so I, I, who's going to take the land? That's for us. How, how are we going to be able to survive? And in the midst of all this that's going on, Joshua is like, stop. Hold up. Stop the party. We need to zero in on Zelophehad and his five daughters. It's beautiful. Verse four, it says, Joshua came gave them an inheritance along with the brothers and their father according to the Lord's command. Manasseh's share consisted then of 10 tracts, the land besides Gilead and Bashan east of the Jordan because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance along 
among the sons. Do, do you see how incredible that is? Do you see how amazing and breathtaking and astounding that is? In the midst of all that is going on in this high-level distribution, guess what? God didn't forget this one family and these five girls who, who what are they going to do when their father is gone and they have no brothers and they're on their own? God says, you know what? I notice, I notice each and every tribe and then I notice right down to each and every person, even the people that you might think should be forgotten or brushed aside, the marginalized and the discounted, even them, God is like, stop, hold up. We need to take care of every single one. It drives home the point so clearly, doesn't it? God is taking notice of each and every person. You and I, we may not recognize these names, but they are individual people. Just because the names sound funny to us and might be hard to pronounce in our tongue twisters, don't miss the fact. Oh, don't miss this fact. They are men and women, one by one, that Almighty God is taking notice of, that Almighty God is showing his care for. We are seeing here the same God that says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. God not only knew and cared for and took note of every single person amongst the whole mass of one million people and said, I notice every single one of you, every tribe, every family, every individual, even the most potentially forgotten within the tribes, I care. Hear this. He notices you and he cares for you. He cares for you. He knows every single hair on your head. He knows every single need you have. And he has not forgotten. He has not abandoned. He has not moved away. This is our God, friends. Are you going through some times right now that are hard? You're struggling. I, I don't know what weights are, are upon your shoulders or what storm clouds are over your head right now, but it just feels like, man, is God even around? As I, as I pray, it feels like I'm just talking to the walls. As I cry, it feels like the only thing that is bringing any comfort is my pillow soaking up my tears. Has God forgotten me? Is God even around? Does God even notice? Here today, friends, we see as we fly across these chapters a very personal God who cared about every single person and every single tribe and you. Do you find yourself right now struggling, falling back into sin after sin that you know is not where you're supposed to go? Addiction, looking at stuff, partaking in things, drinking, getting involved in stuff you just know you shouldn't be doing. You know, you know the Bible says that what you're doing is not what you're supposed to do and living how you're supposed to live. And yet, 
there's part of the back of your mind that's beginning to think, you know what? I don't know if God's even noticing. I mean, there's no lightning bolt from heaven that's come down at this point. It doesn't seem like it's really hurting anyone. It, it actually feels kind of good. And I know there's all these rules, but, but you're beginning to wonder, is God really even seeing? Is there really even a God? I don't really even know. Maybe this whole thing and all these rules that, that I thought are how you're supposed to live because it's what my parents or my grandparents told me is actually just a bunch of ancient prudish restrictions trying to rob the joy of life. Can I tell you, friend? Even though in this moment right now, you might think God's not seeing. Oh, he is. God sees. God knows. The fact that you're watching even today, it's no coincidence. The Lord is speaking to say, oh, run from it. I see. Be sure your sin will find you out, friend. A walk into the light. Run into the light because God's hands are wide open. The individual care of God is calling out to each one. Those who are weighed down and burdened because they don't know if God really notices them. Those who are struggling and think they can hide from God. God says, come to me. I see, I care, and, and savor the personal care that I have for each and every one. This book calls us with encouragement and hope. These chapters here as we fly across with the bush plane call us with conviction and accountability. Savor God's care because his work is oh so personal for you and for me. Turn to the Lord. He is near. Turn to the Lord and lay down your burden before him. Turn to the Lord, lay down your struggle. Turn to the Lord and dive into his word for it is trustworthy and good and his ways are personal and sweet. Oh Lord, would you help us to turn and run to you as we respond to your word this day?